trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, let's get this thing started. Hey, welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. We've got a lot to discuss in this hour. And can I ask a small favor? I'm just going to ask this right off the very top. If there's something you find of redeeming value in what I do each day behind this microphone, could you please consider sharing this with your friends? Just let people know that there is uh, there's an alternative source of information out there that uh, doesn't require any kind of hyper hyperpartisanship or anything like that. I uh, I come here each day. I try to speak the truth as best I can. But I want you to understand too that the information that I pick, I try to find things that have substance. And and I say this as someone who once uh, learned uh, that if you want to build an audience. Going the sensational route definitely works. In other words, throwing red meat will absolutely build you a large, loyal listening audience. I'm going for quality over quantity, though. And not everybody wants that, okay? Some people want the fluff. Some people want the outrage. Some people want to be told, well, this is what you need to hate or this is who you need to be against. Um, I, I don't like the enemy-driven approach. I think time is short. I think that each one of us has influence that we need to wield absolutely as wisely as we possibly can. And so I try to find information that will empower you to better understand what's going on around you, but will also do it in a way that you come away more sure of what you stand for than simply who or what you're against. And I understand that can be kind of a rarity. I'm not trying to say I'm better than everybody else. I'm not. But I do have a different approach. And if it's an approach that makes sense to you, I'm asking you, help me get the word out there. Let people know. They can subscribe to the, the, for, the podcast. They can catch the live broadcast on its various platforms. And if you think about it, maybe even consider becoming a patron or becoming a, a regular monthly donor. I truly appreciate it because uh, there are times where it feels like I'm kind of swinging out here in the wind. I wouldn't do it any other way. I have the freedom to speak truth like I have never had before in my life, and I am taking full advantage of it. And I thank you with all the choices that you have in front of you for making me a part of your day. Whenever you find time to listen, I truly appreciate it. So, well, let's dive right in, talk about a couple of things that are going on. Um, I know that uh, right now President Trump's fiercest supporters are loath to consider the possibility that he is going to be leaving office in January. And I don't know what the future holds, okay? So this is not a prediction of, well, it's too bad because, uh, you know, I, somebody pointed this out yesterday, and I thought it was kind of funny. Uh, Trump ought to beat them at their own game. He should simply tell the media, I identify as president. <laughs> and run with it. Okay, that's pretty funny. Thomas L. Knapp, in a piece that was published on everythingvoluntary.com, does have some pretty interesting suggestions of what Trump could do, two things that he could do to burnish his legacy if, in fact, he is a short-timer, if he only has a couple of months left in office. These are a couple of things he should do. And you know what? 
I'm going to I'm going to just come right out and admit it. There's a lot of good that Trump has done. No, he hasn't been perfect, and I don't think it's it's uh, fair to expect perfection of the president. The office of president wasn't meant to be that of emperor. But I can also acknowledge he's done far less damage than many of his predecessors. I'm thinking particularly in terms of, you know, foreign policy, not getting us involved in more wars. Again, he's not perfect, but he does not have that, uh, that belligerence that uh, other leaders have had that have entangled us in very costly wars. Most of the price of which has been paid by the people on the receiving end of our democratic ministrations. So Thomas Knapp says this column assumes that Joe Biden has won the 2020 U.S. presidential election. While that seems like a safe assumption, he says it would take successful legal challenges in several states to change the outcome. But it is an assumption. So he says, I could be writing this for nothing. But he says, if Joe Biden is locked in as the next president of the United States, Donald Trump has more than two months remaining in office. And he says, during that time, there are several steps he can and should take to burnish his legacy and set himself up to be remembered more kindly than his first four years and 10 months in office might otherwise merit. So here are two of the suggestions. First of all, he says Trump ran on and has frequently talked about ending the forever wars. He could deliver on a big chunk of that promise by ordering the U.S. armed forces to withdraw all U.S. troops other than Embassy Guard from Afghanistan and Syria by Christmas. Now, Thomas Knapp says that order should be accompanied by an explicit warning that generals who drag their feet, comment to the press that they don't think he really means it, etc., will promptly be relieved of duty and replaced by generals who enthusiastically tackle the tasks their commander-in-chief assigns them. We've had four years of resistance from the generals and excuses from bureaucrats. It's time to get things done. Thomas L. Knapp says, second, Trump has the power to pardon. And he says he should use that power in an unprecedented fashion, emptying the federal prisons of nonviolent drug offenders and other assorted victims of a justice system gone haywire. In particular, he should pardon pardon rather, in alphabetical order, Julian Assange, Chelsea Manning, Edward Snowden, and Ross Ulbricht. Assange and Snowden have been charged, but not yet tried, with telling the American people the truth about their government's crimes. Manning has been convicted for the same heroic acts. President Obama commuted her sentence, but it's time to restore her rights and recognize her service to her country. Ross Ulbricht is serving two life terms without the possibility of parole, for the crime of running a website, Silk Road, that saved countless lives by allowing sellers and customers to circumvent the U.S. government's evil restrictions on the sale and possession of drugs. He's a political prisoner. Full stop. The prosecutors and judge who railroaded him belong in prison. He doesn't. President Trump could do America a huge favor by dismantling the war machine and carceral state with these actions. Thomas Knapp says whistleblowers and entrepreneurs should be congratulated, not caged. Nonviolent breakers of victimless crime laws should at bare minimum be freed. And American troops who signed up to defend America should be withdrawn from places where that's not what they're doing and where they have no legitimate business being. He says no matter President Trump's failings, no matter what he may have to answer for, a grateful nation will owe him if he uses his last days in office to leave America freer and at more peace than he found it 
four years ago. Now, I understand that may rub some people the wrong way. That may feel like, hey, now, you know, let's not get crazy. Uh, there were there were a lot of uh, the very diehard Trump supporters who were very much hawkish in their support for him. And I have to wonder if after four years they have, have come to realize he actually has done a very good job of not bowing to the establishment's desires to get us more deeply involved than, than we already are. I still question, why would we have troops in Syria in the first place? In what way is that a vital American interest? In what way is it worth American lives being expended for the purpose of flexing our muscles over there? And I get it. To, to the hawks out there and to the interventionists, you know, well, there's a vacuum out there in the world, and if we don't fill it, Putin is surely going to, or maybe China is going to fill it. And my answer is, so what? Our military is supposed to serve the purpose of defending our interests, defending the American people, defending American freedoms. Not to just go out there and impose, you know, what, whatever the folks at Foggy Bottom at the State Department think needs to be imposed on a reluctant world. But that's how it's been used for many, many uh, decades now. And unfortunately, that's where people kind of get this idea of American exceptionalism is, well, we have the right to tell the rest of the world what to do. We don't. And if you ever wonder, where did that term blowback come from? Meaning, you know, the, the, the blowback from foreign intervention. You know, that's from the CIA itself. They acknowledge sometimes the actions that have been taken under the, the auspices of the national security state have come back to bite us in very real ways. 9-11 probably being the most visible and shocking example. We can do better. And so I would applaud if, if, in fact, the president is in the last days in office. He could really do a lot for the cause of freedom, which people assure me, his, his strongest supporters assure me, that's what he's all about. He's protecting our freedoms. He could do more so by bringing home the remaining troops who are in places where they really shouldn't be in the first place and pardoning those individuals like Julian Assange, like Chelsea Manning, like Edward Snowden and Ross Ulbricht. And if you're not as familiar with their stories, maybe you should do a little bit of uh, homework and see why keeping them imprisoned or, you know, otherwise in exile is such a travesty. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So glad you could join me. I know that uh, right now there's a huge power struggle taking place not just here in America, not just in my home state of Utah, but it's all around the world. And coronavirus is the excuse for why government must be in charge and government must tell us all, you know, what to do. Because government sees itself as the solution for all of life's problems. And this is an article from Jason Reed. I had the chance to interview him on the program Moving Forward with Young Voices, which airs on the Fed by Ravens media network. And uh, talked with him a couple of weeks back. This is an article he wrote recently. Listen to this title. 
As an obese person, I am not a problem for the government to solve. And I want to use this article as, as a, a great illustration of how, despite the, the good intentions, it's very hard to keep government limited to its proper role because they believe, you know, those who are within government and those who uh, staff the bureaucracy seem to think that uh, everything is a government issue. Well, that's something government ought to be telling people how to solve. And I think Jason Reed makes a very powerful case for, no, not everything is an issue. Now, keep in mind, he's writing from the UK. He says the UK has suffered the worst coronavirus outbreak in Europe with over 46,000 deaths to date. Public Health England officials failed to scale up our testing regime early. That, along with a myriad of other mistakes, contributed to our bungled response to the pandemic, the tragic consequences of which are plain to see. Yet somehow, he says, Boris Johnson has decided to place immense trust on the words of those same officials at Public Health England in his new effort to regulate obesity out of existence. The man who once decried sugar taxes has apparently abandoned his belief in liberalism in order to cater to the desires of the quangocrats. Well, there's a new phrase. I'm adding that one to my vocabulary. The same man, he says, who was elected on a platform of rolling back the continued creep of the nanny state is now wholeheartedly endorsing compulsory calorie counts on menus, daytime advertising bans for junk food, and a prohibition of buy one, get one free offers on food items the government considers to be obesity-inducing, which include honey, yogurt, mustard, and tinned fruit. He says to make the whole situation even more baffling, this new anti-obesity strategy has been unveiled at the same time as the eat-out-to-help-out voucher scheme. As the infamous Westminster saying goes, the only real difference between the thick of it and real life is that in the former... People don't go around saying, wow, this is just like the thick of it all the time. He says the fact that this is happening in 2020 says a great deal about the outdated and harmful ways we still think about obesity. Ministers speak brashly and with great confidence about how they can tackle the problem of obesity. And Jason Reed says, as an obese person, I find that incredibly dehumanizing. I am not a problem for the government to solve. Obese people are not damsels in distress waiting for the benevolent hand of government to reach down and rescue us from our plight. In fact, he says, my, gov- my diet is not something government should be concerning itself with at all. He says, I'm reminded of an old spectator cartoon in which a portly man stands on a weighing scale and remarks, why doesn't the government do something about my weight? <laughs> I love it. Now, Jason Reed says, if there's a problem to be solved here, it's not obesity. Poor health and obesity are not the same thing. In fact, links between the two are wildly overstated. For instance, studies estimate that up to 75% of obese people are metabolically healthy. So if we must treat obesity as a public health crisis, it seems perfectly clear that the solution is an increased focus on health and social education. Most of us simply don't know enough about our own health to make properly informed choices. The answer is certainly not ham-fisted policies with disastrous consequences for those suffering with eating disorders. Jason says, The way ministers speak about this issue is very telling. They talk about obesity as a blight on the country, as if it's somehow getting in the way of the government realizing its glorious vision for an impossibly prosperous post-Brexit global Britain. 
But he says all this does is serve to amplify harmful stereotypes about fat people leeching off the national health system. In a public display display of crippling myopia, Health Secretary Matt Hancock proudly declared recently, if everyone who is overweight lost five pounds, it could save the NHS 100 million pounds, meaning uh, monetary units, over the next five years. And Jason Reed says even if that were true, that amount would equate to less than 0.02% of the NHS budget. But more to the point, he says, why villainize fat people in this way as if we're willingly taking money out of the pockets of hardworking British taxpayers? He says overweight people, especially those under the age of 25, are already particularly susceptible to serious mental health issues. We don't need state-condoned fat shaming on top of that. Obviously, he says, the government's anti-fat crusade will not work. Its own research predicts that its ad ban, for example will eliminate 1.7 calories from children's diets per day. That's the equivalent of half of a Smartie. And that's before we get into the immense economic costs of putting the advertising industry in a straitjacket during a global pandemic and economic disaster. Jason Reed says this package of measures gives a disturbing peek behind the curtain. The government appears to be under the impression that fat people are simply too stupid to do anything about it themselves. How must you see obese people if you think that banning buy one, get one free deals on unhealthy foods will cause people to lose weight? He says this attitude is condescending and demeaning. It achieves nothing. Obese people are not some sort of political football you can throw about here and there. We're human beings, not a problem for you to solve. Leave us alone. Bravo. Right on the money. And it, it, it brings up the idea that, you know, if, if a government can step in in this area and regulate these choices and dictate this and dictate that, at what point does it stop? I mean, this has implications for the war on some drugs. This has implications for, you know, seatbelt laws and so forth. I can give you an example, an example too, of the, that need for control, that need to, to have somehow influence or coercion over other people. I don't think I've ever seen it more clearly portrayed than an article that came out yesterday in the Salt Lake Tribune. Um, in my home state of Utah, of course, the governor has flexed his mighty little muscles and uh, imposed a bunch of different mandates, particularly regarding uh, social distancing. I'm sorry, particularly regarding gatherings. And mask mandates. Everybody shall wear masks. And if you gather in an unapproved fashion, a $10,000 fine, blah, blah, blah. By gosh, we're going to, we're going to solve the problem of coronavirus. And Sheriff Ken Carpenter, who is the sheriff in Iron County, Utah, this is down in my old stomping grounds of Cedar City, made the comment, uh, look, my job is not to go out there and enforce health edicts. In other words, his job is to enforce criminal laws and, and to, to help keep the courts running. It's not to go out there and enforce mandates, which are not the same thing as laws. Now, I applaud him for, for recognizing this and, and publicly saying, I'm not going to tell my deputies to go out there and arrest people because they're not wearing a mask. That is a personal decision. They are the patient. And this is something where they have to be able to exercise their choice. But, oh, the heel clickers are so incensed 
And I mean everything from he should be, you know, immediately taken out of office and put in jail to, well, when everybody in Iron County gets coronavirus, they should all be denied hospitalization. They should all be denied ventilators. This is what passes for apparently rational thought in, uh, in today's world. Someone doesn't agree with me? Someone refuses to accede to my demands for control over them? I hope they die, is how these people are approaching it. I know, it's very mature. It's about one step above lying on the floor, kicking and screaming and holding your breath to turn blue in the face so mommy will finally cave and give you some ice cream. My advice, get over yourself and get back in your lane. And thank you, Sheriff Carpenter, for recognizing not every edict is the same thing as a law. I'm glad somebody understands this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Again, I encourage you to check out the show notes where you will find thought-provoking commentaries and essays as well as my personal annotations for what they're worth. Again, I'm, I'm not the source or the fount of all truth here. I just happen to have an eye for stuff that I think is, is, is fairly thought-provoking and hopefully principled above all, and that's why I share it with you. And you'll also find, oftentimes, there are more bits of information, more pieces, more stories than I have the opportunity to get to, even though I have a full two hours to work with each day. Um, I still will sometimes include stories that you can only find in those show notes, and uh, they are well worth your time, or at least I try to pick stuff that should be well worth your time, and, and that's where you can access them, and if necessary, share them with your friends on social media. By the way, I also would ask this favor. When you access my show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com, take the time to leave a comment for me. Okay, there's a nice little comment feature right there at the very bottom of the page, and your feedback is more important than you know. I mean, you can tell me you're doing a great job. You can tell me this is something that you should probably consider doing better. You can tell me I'm as full of it as a Christmas goose. You're not going to hurt my feelings. I do appreciate the feedback, and it really does help me better serve you in this capacity. Wanted to share an article about... Uh, for better health and a stronger economy, don't lock down again. Somebody out there needs to hear this. Governor Gary Herbert, I'm looking your direction, but there are probably other people who need to hear this as well. This is from Benjamin Powell, published on the American Institute for Economic Research's website. And again, this is not just something that's happening here in my home state of Utah. It's happening all over the place. And Benjamin Powell points out, European countries are imposing harsh lockdowns again <clears throat> as a second wave of COVID-19 spreads throughout Europe. He says it was a mistake last spring when most U.S. states followed Europe's lead in imposing lockdowns during the first wave. And he says it would be an even bigger mistake to copy the failed lockdowns again today. In fact, he says, I was stunned when Italy imposed regional lockdowns in late February and a national lockdown on March 9th. In short order, most other European countries did the same. Then, influenced by the sensational predictions from Neil Ferguson's team at Imperial College London that more than 500,000 Britons and 2.2 million Americans might die from the virus, the United Kingdom and most of the United States followed suit. 
Panic and herd mentality drove policymaking in March, he writes, and frightened populations ceded their personal, economic, and religious liberties on a scale unprecedented, even during war times. Benjamin Powell says with eight months of hindsight, it seems obvious that the lockdowns did more harm than good on a number of accounts. Not only did they throw tens of millions worldwide out of work, decimating entire industries, think restaurants and bars, travel, tourism, airlines, and aerospace. But they also triggered waves of secondary medical problems, including anxiety and depression, increased substance abuse and domestic violence, and other adverse health outcomes as many surgeries and screenings were delayed or missed. Now, he says some economic damage was inevitable because of COVID-19, but long, indiscriminate lockdowns made the contractions much worse. The simultaneous timing of increased COVID cases and lockdowns in March and April made it difficult to determine which was in fact causing more economic harm. But as southern states began to reopen over the summer, both their COVID cases and economic activity surged. The region had the highest number of daily new COVID cases and the lowest unemployment rate at 6.9% in the country. The lockdowns probably did save hospitals from being overwhelmed in New York City, New Orleans, and other places. But hospitals were nowhere near capacity in most of the United States. In fact, because of the widespread cancellation of non-emergency surgeries, many hospitals were overstaffed and laid off workers. Europe and the United States are now facing a second wave of COVID-19 infections. Over the last month, daily cases tripled in France and increased by a factor of four in England six in Germany, and 10 in Italy. That's according to the New York Times COVID case counter. As a result, countries are locking down again. France has closed bars and restaurants and is requiring people across the entire country to stay home. Factories can continue to operate, but non-essential stores must close. The United Kingdom just announced what amounts to a new national lockdown. Germany has shut down its restaurants, bars, gyms, theaters, and hotels and is now prohibiting gatherings of more than 10 people. Protests and riots have erupted in Italy over its reimposed restrictions. And Benjamin Powell says here in the United States, meanwhile, cases have nearly doubled over the past month. California, Massachusetts, New Jersey, New York, and other northern and western states have kept many of their restrictions in place and are requiring travelers from other states to quarantine. Florida, Texas, Georgia... Tennessee and most southern and midwestern states have mostly reopened. Some, such as South Dakota, never locked down. Even with California, New York, and Massachusetts maintaining tight restrictions on personal and commercial activities. He says the economic recovery, driven in large part by the open states, has exceeded expectations. The United States recorded its most rapid economic expansion in history during the third quarter, meaning July through September of 2020, bouncing back at an annualized rate of 33.1%. Unemployment, which hit 15% last spring, is now under 8% nationally, according to a recent report from the Bureau of Labor Statistics. A second lockdown would smother the recovery while only delaying the inevitable spread of COVID-19. Now, here's the kicker. Benjamin Powell says, instead of following Europe into a second round of lockdowns, the United States should follow the advice of the top scientists and medical experts who have signed the Great Barrington Declaration. They advise avoiding lockdowns and focusing instead 
on protecting the most vulnerable, letting the disease spread among the young and healthy to build population immunity. Heeding their guidance would better preserve the economic recovery and more quickly end the pandemic than another round of lockdowns. Now, I know this goes counter to what a lot of people are thinking right now, but I believe it is absolutely the best way that this could be handled. And in my home state of Utah, it is precisely this crackdown on, well, it's all these young people having their Halloween parties and, you know, getting getting together for dances and, and flouting the conventions of these lockdowns. These are, you know, these are the super spreader events. And I don't know, you know, the, the case could be made. Maybe people are contracting coronavirus by attending this. But the point is, the young people are the ones best equipped to handle it. They're the ones who get the disease, who get over it more quickly, and are able to resume their lives. Look, nobody is suggesting, well, we just throw our hands in the air and we do nothing to mitigate the risk. No, the Great Barrington Declaration very clearly says, protect the most vulnerable. Meaning, the elderly, those people who have comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, obesity. Protect them but let the healthy, the ones able to deal with it, deal with it. I think there's a lot of wisdom in this approach, and this is how you achieve herd immunity. But unfortunately, to, a, to people who are, are mainlining fear and who feel like somebody has to be in charge, somebody has to tell me what to do, what to feel, what to think, they just can't fathom the idea that we should be able to make these decisions and assess these risks on our own and then step forward and embrace whatever degree of risk we feel is acceptable. They want that centralized control. They want that coercion over their fellow men. And it's sickening on any number of levels, but mostly because they are perfectly content to destroy the lives of other people without considering that there are alternatives to this. And as has been pointed out uh, before on this program, Oftentimes, those who are most vigorously and, you know, embracing the idea that this has to be top-down coercion, there should be strict fines and strict enforcement, these are the people who are in a position to work from home. These are the people who don't have to be out there facing the public, who don't have the blue-collar jobs. These are the people who think they know best. And they're the people who most desperately need a firm, backhanded slap right across their face to bring them back to reality. You do not have the prerogative to control other people's lives. So stop acting like it. Let people assess the risks. If you feel so inclined that you need to protect yourself at a deeper level, then by all means, do so. But stop using the state as uh, your, you know, bully to go out there and make everybody do what you think is the right thing. And those who keep appealing to the science, the science, oh, the science is settled. If you're using the words, the science is settled, I already know your head is stuck where the sun isn't shining. There are a lot of different scientific minds working on this from a lot of different angles. The problem comes when we combine authority and science and start imposing one-size-fits-all solutions. It's not the best way to go. This is The Brian Hyde Show.
This is The Brian Hyde Show. Welcome back to the show. I got a couple of great commentaries for this next segment here. And in fact, I want to give you kind of a heads up. Alex R. Knight III, I'm just going to call him Alex, is going to be my guest on Friday's show. I'm really looking forward to talking with him. Um, he is quite a writer. I discovered his work when I was uh, when I subscribed to everythingvoluntary.com. If you haven't signed up for their daily emails, you are missing out on an absolute treasure trove of information, which includes not just Alex's work, but a lot of other great writers as well. And in fact, if you really want to give yourself a, a little bit of, uh, you know, a, a heads up and, and a head start on good information, great sources through which you can, can check out the world, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com, and just scroll down. There's a lot of show notes, so you may have to scroll for a moment. There's a, there's a section called Resources for Wrong Thinkers. And I have listed there many of the different uh, websites, different news aggregators that I subscribe to. And there are links so you can go and visit them. You can sign up for yourself if you feel like they have material that is worth your while. I put that there because I know there are a lot of people trying to find good news sources. And right now, <laughs> there's a lot of uh, distrust in a lot of the heritage news sources because they are very clearly part of the machinery. Now, I think that's actually a good thing. I think the faith in our media being shaken is, is actually a, a plus. But it still leaves people wondering, well, where can, I, where can I get information? Where can I find facts about the world that I live in? And so I offer that uh, just my contribution of these are some of the sites that I rely on. Certainly it's not the, uh, the comprehensive be-all, end-all list. But I sure find a lot of good food for thought. And I encourage you to, to check it out for yourself. There's a great column from Alex Knight about how it's getting harder to trust government and why that's a good thing. And if there is a silver lining to the current election chaos that we're experiencing, it's that uh, those who are, are the, the government cultists, the, the, the true believers, are for the first time having their faith shaken to the core. Here's why that's a good thing. Alex Knight says, The results so far of the 2020 U.S. presidential election between Donald Trump and Joe Biden have been nothing so much as chaos. And where they go from here is admittedly, or absolutely rather, anybody's guess. But he says, I'll venture one admittedly obvious prediction. Whichever side loses will regard the outcome as having been stolen and achieved fraudulently by the opposition. This will invariably intensify the already fever pitch division and hatred each faction feels for each other, a sentiment not likely to recede or diminish anytime soon. Now, he says Donald Trump likes to say that in America we worship God, not government. And while this is, to some degree, a collective and presumptuous statement, perhaps he says such sentiment might be better expressed by saying in America we ought to worship God if we worship anything at all, not government. He says it still addresses a salient point. To many, perhaps even most people, government and politics have taken on all the qualities of a de facto religion in their minds. It is the vehicle of raw force by which they, by which not only they expect to live, but the one, their version which, of which, of course, they expect all others to abide by as well. Now, Alex Knight says at least one of these quasi-theological factions 
is about to become both very disillusioned with and by a process which heretofore they've held in kind of a sacred light, even if only subconsciously. He says, I don't expect that this disillusionment will penetrate the indoctrination of more than one in every 10,000 deeply enough to cause them to reject the cult of the state altogether. But he says one can still dream. If there's any silver lining to this situation at all, he says, this is the only one I can find. Now, I, I happen to share that, uh, that point of view with him. I don't know what the ratio is going to be, but I know there are a lot of people whose faith in government and faith in the system and the political reassurance ritual is going to be shaken mightily. And the part that I'm grateful for is, for the first time, a lot of these folks are going to be questioning their, their assumptions. Now, look, I'm not making light of this. I'm not pretending like, ha-ha, you know, I'm going to be standing there laughing at them. I'm not. But I am definitely going to be speaking truth and, to the best of my ability, trying to offer light and direction and alternatives that they may not have known existed before they were forced to start questioning some of their assumptions. I've been there myself, and I understand it is a, it's a painful place to be. Crashing on the rocks of reality is never fun. But a lot of people are crashing on those rocks of reality, and when the final decisions are made or the final outcome of the election is cemented, Alex Knight's absolutely correct. At least half the country is going to be absolutely convinced that something has been stolen from them, and they're going to be very disillusioned. I'm praying it's not the violent half, but (laughs) we'll see. I think this is a great opportunity for those of us who, who have sound principles on our side to be ready to reach out to them, to reach out to those who are actively searching. And it's not going to be everybody. In fact, it's not even going to be a clear majority But the people who will have learned to value truth over their partisanship are exactly the kind of people we want to reach. They're the kind of people we want to to go out there and meet halfway on that bridge and have these kind of conversations with. Look at them as a prize to be won rather than a foe to be vanquished. And I think you'll find uh, the, the results will be really satisfactory. All right, a couple minutes left here. I want to talk about civil disobedience, home style, just because this may be a thing that uh, we have to consider. Annie Holmquist, writing for Intellectual Takeout, says, I committed an act of civil disobedience the other night. She says, I threw open the dining room window, plopped down at the piano beneath it, and with the family gathered around, flipped open the hymn book and began singing. She says, starting with the battle hymn of the Republic, my family and I soon moved on to the Star-Spangled Banner, My Country, Tis of Thee, America the Beautiful, and other rousing hymns offering comfort and exhorting courage in the face of difficulties. Now she says, okay, so it wasn't quite an act of civil disobedience, but the way things are going, it certainly could soon become one. Depending on the state one lives in, it may be one already, for singing is a condemned activity in the COVID era. Regardless, she says, I was amazed at how cathartic singing was. I shouldn't have been surprised, for singing not only offers physical and mental benefits, but moral and emotional benefits as well. Singing, science tells us, releases a few hormones that naturally lift our spirits and make us happy. These include endorphins and oxytocin, the latter of which relieves anxiety and stress. 
And she says singing also promises to help our memory and health. Could this be a COVID therapy we're missing out on? While offering a sense of community. Now, Annie Holmquist says it's likely that some of the uplift my family and I received from our song fest was related to these scientific benefits, but she says I would guess much of it was also related to these songs' words. For starters, many were militant, refusing to give up the fight for what is right and true, encouraging singers to give themselves selflessly for the country they love. They also recalled historical incidents important to our nation's birth and survival, such as the arrival of our pilgrim forefathers, while also reveling in the freedom we've long enjoyed. But she says many of these songs also include heartfelt prayers. Take America the Beautiful. Many know the famous pleas for God to shed his grace on the country and crown its good with brotherhood. But she asks, how many have forgotten the second verse? America, America, God mend thine every flaw. Confirm thy soul in self-control, thy liberty in law. She says, heaven knows our nation has many flaws, one of which is the lack of self-control demonstrated by the lawless abandon in our city streets. Yet despite how bleak we may feel the outlook is, she says we still have recourse to cry out to God for his aid in a hopeless, messy situation. And finally, she says, these songs offer a pattern for brightening our gloomy, contentious days, moving on from the patriotic songs. My family ended with the old hymns, Count Your Blessings and Thanks to God. The former encourages us to count our blessings when we are tempest-tossed and discouraged, thinking all is lost. The latter also encourages a grateful heart, regardless of one's circumstances. Now, she says her voice was hoarse by the time they finished, but her spirits were lifted, and she says, I felt ready to face whatever comes next. Now, she says, unfortunately, I'm not the only one wrestling with being a bit down these days, which is why I tell you about my little act of civil disobedience and encourage you to indulge in the same. She says, the ideals upon which America was founded are forgotten by many, but these same ideals are buried in these songs of patriotism and faith. By singing these songs, we instill the truths contained in their words in our hearts. And she says, that, my friends, is a little bit of home-style civil disobedience, which any American should be able to get behind. I just like the perspective she brings to this issue. I may have to put it to work. This is The Brian Hyde Show.